1: at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation to reframe how we see something and in turn affect the conversations we go on to have and we can all be part of the change process. My guest today is the embodiment of a powerhouse. I am mad about her, Sonia Lennon. Sonia is probably best known for her dedication to fashion, from working as a stylist to presenting off the rails on RTE with Brent and Courtney. The pair went on to form fashion label Lennon Courtney, first on their own and now through Dunn stores. But it's her work as a changemaker that had me ask her, come on the podcast To be honest, I probably could have spent a couple of hours delving into everything about her meeting Brendan for the first time to presenting on TV, but we got stuck straight into her work as an activist and an advocate. And it started with Dress for Success, which, as you'll hear, was a way to help women return to the workforce with confidence, but became so much more, so rebranded and is now called Work Equal. They recently campaigned and got pay transparency passed into law in an attempt to close the gender pay gap it is yet to be enacted but if the first step is raising awareness this organization is moving mountains she's also co-founded lift ireland a social enterprise which grew they say out of a desire to change our country for the better not because better is needed but because better is possible That sort of stuff just makes my soul sing. And you better believe they are rolling up their metaphorical sleeves and getting stuck in. And what they do, we discuss it in the podcast, is they start with bringing organisations and schools and groups of various people in society together and starting conversations, which as you know, is right up my street. Sonia is passionate, determined, has a keen have a go attitude, but she's well versed, well educated. She recently received a first class honors in a masters of business equality, diversion and inclusion alongside Brendan. They also have a really smart podcast together too. She's extremely articulate and this was a very thought-provoking conversation. We talk about gender roles, societal gender norms, the system which serves no one and how true diversity and inclusion lifts everybody up. I'd also like to add, at the end of all of those accolades, that we met on a grey rainy Tuesday in Dublin and Sonia rocked up in a funky dress from her own collection, sparkly socks and strappy sandals. This is one serious superhero. Underestimate her at your peril. She also has this incredible mix of a powerful leader, but you also want to be her best mate and get on her cocktails and dinner list. I hope that is our next meeting and I can't wait to see what she achieves next. So Sonia Lennon, you're very welcome to Changemakers. Thank you for having me, Claire. People know you in the fashion world and in more recent times, you've stepped out in a bit more of an advocate and an activist type role. So before we get into that, let's find out how it all came about. And reading up on you, a lot of it started when you wanted to bring Dress for Success here at the, the international charity. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: So it started when I got the gig presenting Off the Rails with Brendan. And what happened was loads of um, charities and causes um, got in touch and asked me to MC events and do fundraising drives and maybe become an ambassador. And I didn't like the... I was lending my time, obviously, and and happy to do it when causes um, resonated with me. But it felt a little ad hoc and it felt a little bit um, out of control. And and I did feel a responsibility to use the profile um, to create some sort of positive impact outside of my own reward. Um, And I was really gravitated towards um, children's charities. I was a pretty recent mom of twins. And to me, any any wrongdoing or injustice to children is the ultimate injustice because they have no power to fight back against it. And so when I read about Dress for Success, Dress for Success um, supports women to succeed at interview to advance them towards economic independence. And they do that by... Um, we Well, we do that by... Um, giving styling services and free clothing to to present the outer self at interview but also by working with HR volunteers to mold the internal messaging to present the inside of yourself in the best possible way so it's not that we are changing women for a lifetime but if we can create a catalyst to to allow her to tap into her best self for that moment that can become a change maker for the rest of her life and we've seen it happen Um, and then my brain working the way it does thought, well, if 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 we can support the mother um, to become economically independent, sustainable um, and powerful to the best of her abilities, that is the best possible hope for her children. So we we actually um, we stop the problem before it begins. And I'm kind of slightly obsessed. I was it was actually rolling around in my head as I was coming here, this this obsession that I have with treating the cause and not the symptom you know in in the medicine that we uh, partake in our, our system of medicine in this part of the world and most part of the world most parts of the world is about symptomatic treatment and actually in all the work that we do in terms of advocacy it's around well yeah yeah we know what the symptom is we know what the problem is what's the cause what's what's the root cause of it and what can we do to really sort of shift the systems behind the cause and um, so Uh, That's what happened with Dress for Success and um, that was 10 years ago and that was my first foray into any kind of organisational development. I was so green around the gills. I didn't have a clue what was going on. I was put through the ringer in terms of getting the licence from the governing body in New York. I thought I was going to die. I was so stressed. Like it was awful and um, was
1: this alongside obviously running your own business no, where was lemon so Courtney was, at that time it, it
0: didn't exist so and that's the really interesting thing about um i suppose for me being in the position of a, as a founder of a non-profit i sort of felt there was a a slight reputational protection and i'm only really unpacking this now around it being non-profit um, that it's not really a business. Well, I got news for you. It is really a business and it needs the money coming in to keep the doors open, to keep serving the clients, to keep everybody happy. Um, so but I think psychologically, I felt I had a little bit of a buffer there that it was a non-profit, And so that was the first time I'd ever done any kind of business. Um, and it was really, I suppose, the confidence that I gained in in making that a reality from nothing that got me thinking, well, surely I can apply the same principles to profit making business and maybe I can, you know, just just transfer those skills. And, and for me, that's where it came from. Brendan had already had a um, experience. Uh, he had his own production company in the UK, so he'd kind of been through that. Um, and then I suppose it was kind of a natural, natural process. We were really interested in working together for our own independence something that we could own and drive and manage and not be at the whim of somebody else saying we've had enough of them goodbye
1: yeah and did you have to ask for your holidays yeah (laughs) can we touch on fashion a little bit then because it's so important even with dress for success people will say fashion is, is frivolous and it's just something that's fun and yet it's a lot more than that and even what you said there from working on off the rails i'm sure you would have seen in the transformation pieces, the women and men who would come in with their self-esteem on the ground and then looking at how they project themselves to the world, how they feel about themselves on the inside and how they present themselves on the outside is so crucial and particularly coming back into the workforce mm-hmm. um, and going for interview, how you feel about yourself on the inside is often represented on the outside. What's interesting about both of those scenarios is that there are
0: parallels. And so the the women and men that we worked with on off the rails, um, we were only able to do our job if they had done enough work to be ready to receive. So we needed to understand from their backstory and their notes and their letters and the interviews that we did with every single person before we selected them for the process. We needed to understand that they that they were ready to take it, ready to receive. And with Dress for Success, I suppose there's a similarity in that um, the women who come to us have already decided to go on a journey of self-improvement through education or training to change their lot and their position and their own narrative about who they are and what they can become. So when they come to us, you know, 70% of the work is done and, and the power of what we do is gilding that and setting them on their way. And I should say, just for clarity, this year, uh, Dress for Success rebranded to work equal to, I suppose, it's important. And and I think that the, you touched on it already, the fact that people think fashion is frivolous. And for us, Dress for Success didn't reflect the, the full scope of everything that we do to support the women that we serve. And so it was more important for us to 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 wrap in that advocacy piece that, you know, governmental lobbying, that the high level business lobbying and um, media campaigns to try and drive that systemic change. So um, early this year, we we became uh, work equals. So but but still serving clients and in fact, growing to become a national uh, service provider and also Now, I suppose, any woman who feels the need to avail of our services doesn't have to come through a referral agency. They can pick up the phone. They can contact us by email and we will help them. We will give them
1: as much as we can of what they need to succeed. Because it can happen to anyone at any time. We can all get stuck. We can get lost. Trauma can happen. Loss. And I do remember feeling it myself after maternity leave. You don't really know where you are at. This atomic bomb has arrived into your life. And yes, it's fantastic. But when you come back to get into work, I remember thinking, I can see why some people in inverted commas, let themselves go. You just go with what needs to do and you fight fires and you tread the water. So that's not exactly the mindset you need to be in if you want to advance your career, if you want to get all the spinning plates spinning as well as they can, at what point, though, did you realise that it's not a broken woman; it's a broken system, and and it did become work equal? Um, I suppose it must be going back about six years.
0: I realized we were doing fantastic work. We have an army of volunteers, really accomplished, skill-specific volunteers doing the best work to help these women. And and it was that penny drop moment where you realized you were launching these fabulous women into an environment that was hostile, you know? And you were like, hang on a minute. And I suppose out of that came... Um, at the campaign for uh, to close the gender pay gap. And again, back to the symptom and cause, gender pay gap is the symptom, not the cause. Let's be clear about that. Um, But we started to, and I suppose I was the one with my head above the parapet saying, this is a serious problem. There's an inequity here in how we do business. And to say I was pilloried from the heights, I was called uh, I, I was called a liar, and um, I, I, I was attacked by this army of what I call gender pay gap deniers—people who said it, it wasn't true. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny now, you know, that at this, st- and and what's even more funny is, it didn't bother me. Like I didn't let it in. Um, I knew I was right and they were wrong. Um, and late last year early this year, perhaps, we did a piece of uh, research with um, behaviour and attitudes, nationally representative research, and the results were that 74% of the Irish population believed that closing the gender pay gap should be a priority for both government and employers. Now, that's a validation. When you were getting rocks hurled at you at the beginning of the campaign, people were calling you a liar. Now, mind you, not everybody in Ireland was doing that, only the really noisy ones who were against what we were doing or didn't believe in what we were doing. So I think that's a real lesson in terms of the information that we receive is generally from, you know, the 5% on either end of the the poll um, that are really noisy and and, and really sort of um, adamant about their views. The 96% of the exhausted majority in the middle don't have those polarized views and have the capacity, I think, to learn and grow and understand and change with societal needs. And that's
1: what we're talking about here. It's so interesting because it's a fact. I mean, the current gender pay gap in Ireland is 14.4%. Like it's it's not a fact that can be argued against. You can argue about why it is and how we're going to change it, but saying it doesn't exist. And even at the time, at the beginning, when,
0: when it was being denied, they were facts. They were existing facts, OECD facts, um, but people weren't ready to receive it. So why do we have a gender pay gap? How long is this podcast? (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of reasons. And in fact, in 2018, we did the first Work Equal Conference. And I'm going to try and remember all five pillars that we came up with. We did a really interesting exercise. We called all stakeholders into the room. So you're talking about IBEC, trade unions, um, politicos, uh, leaders of business, individual women representing the women of Ireland, um, nonprofits, profits uh, community groups, whatever you want. Everybody into the room, we said, OK, we know what the problems are, what's causing it? And and what we really came to were... Um, or or, or what really what are the five solutions to fix it what are the five things that need to be addressed definitely the gender pay gap as as a a symptom needed to be addressed through legislation delighted to say that's now happened hasn't been implemented but it's been passed Um, societal norms and that's a really interesting one and it's enormous I could go on for days but even in terms of the messaging that we give our kids at the earliest stages like I'm mortified to say that When uh, when the twins were born, one boy, one girl, I bought, found these gorgeous uh, Nordic, this beautiful Nordic homewares company, and they had these pristine white uh, duvet covers with a digital print of an astronaut and a ballerina on them, and I thought, oh, they're gorgeous. You know, I wouldn't do that now.
1: Yeah, I know, and I have the same scientific experiment going on in my own house. I have a boy and a girl. And it fascinates me the same. And, you know, even to the clothes they wear, the boys are dressed in construction and dinosaur and it's all strong and the girls are unicorns and clouds mm. and mm. it should just be a mix of both. It should.
0: Yeah. And and I suppose it's so it's all the, the, the those gen societal gender norms are in the home. They're in the school. They're on the billboards. They're on our screens and um, they're in the conversations in the schoolyard. All of that. So. We can't change that overnight, but what we can do is create an awareness. And I think that's happening. It's definitely happening. It's not okay to make those assumptions about people's interests anymore. We have to question them. Yeah. So that's the beginning of that. Men that's are it. doctors, women totally. are nurses,
1: even playing with Barbies with my little girl. Sometimes I'll say, oh, I'm just back from my job in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just back from the moon.
0: <laughs> yeah. And another one was women in leadership, um, which, uh, you know, is a big sort of um, podium basher for me. How can we stand by and watch decis- decision making tables make decisions for the entire population if they're not representative. It just doesn't make any sense because women don't necessarily know what's going on for men. Men don't necessarily know what's going on for women. So it's it's again, it's about raising awareness and saying, well, if there are 11 women and one man, 11 men and one woman around that table making a decision that impacts impacts a lot of people and that lot of people could be a, a company or an organization or a community group or anything, it's just not right. It's not right because women are 51% of the population. Um, And and even the fact that we still sometimes slip and call women a minority group. We ain't a minority group. We're a majority group, but we are an underrepresented group. So it's tackling that representation piece. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I did see one of the maternity hospitals tweeting a picture of their board of management and they were celebrating some decision and it was all men. It was all men in suits. And it just shocked me. And that's not to say I don't think maternity. Hospital and that, I mean that's not to say I don't think that men can have empathy and make decisions. Their parents too, and we're looking for equality. But surely there should have been more women at that table. By definition, it doesn't make
0: any sense. The, their clients are women. <laughs>
1: like it's 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 yeah, mind boggling to be honest with you. How much of the gender pay gap has to do with having a family and women becoming mothers? Because that seems to be where it becomes complicated i even remember feeling it myself on maternity leave we both had this child but my life seemed to completely change whereas he was still going to work he was coming back and i became the house manager just by the very definition of me being there Mm. 24 7 and there wasn't another option i suppose with paternity leave whether or not i would have taken it is another question and A friend of mine was saying at a a, a dinner we were all gathered around. She was saying to another friend, look, you know, it's very difficult. And if if one of us are going to leave work due to the cost of childcare, it has to be the one who's being paid less and you have to really support the bigger salary. But if that's constantly going to be...
0: Then the gender pay gap is eating
1: itself. Then how can we ever make that change? And it actually took years for that to distill down in my brain. And all of a sudden I sat up and said... No, we we can't just accept that. We need to change that.
0: Yeah. And I I think, again, uh, parental leave was one of the pillars that that was that was addressed in the conference. And it's it's okay. So we can't change the fact, although we probably can in in the future, in some distant day, that women carry the babies. Right. And so if you're sitting in and you say that it starts with with motherhood doesn't really start with motherhood, Claire. It starts well before that. And um, there was an analysis and research done in the States about the uh, rates of salaries of US MBA students and the, the male MBA students were going on in to jobs on a 25 percent higher salary than the female. And that was before Anybody was thinking about having babies necessarily. They were they were recent graduates. So, and and also interestingly, now in New York last week, uh, legislation was passed to create pay transparency. And so you would have entering into a role. Um, t- two things have happened. First of all, you s- you have transparency of what the salary range is on application, and the and the application could take six months if it was a really um, you know high key firm and it was a big big career job and um, at least at the beginning of that process you now get to see well I'm going to be earning between x and y and um, so that's power in the hands of the person going for the job and the second thing which is really interesting is that a, a recruiter is no longer allowed to ask for your previous salary now that's really interesting because one of the pieces of the puzzle with the gender pay gap is that perpetuation piece that if women are on less money and they're asked what their salary is from the previous job, then that perpetuates into the next job. So you're actually stemming that issue, quite, you know, in a really big way. Um, so that pay transparency piece is is, is really interesting. And, you know, I, I can see it coming here, and employers are terrified of it because, you know, think about things like... Um, Homegrown talent who've maybe been in an organization in a corporate entity for 20, 25 years, they're suffering a salary penalty because they've been incubated in-house rather than recruited from the outside. And somebody recruited from the outside will be on much more money. That's why my key piece of advice to any careerist woman in a corporate environment is keep moving. Keep moving, reassert your value in the marketplace. Don't be afraid to move and, and don't be afraid to look at what you can move to, because that's not going to cost you anything. If you can go back to your employer and say, OK, so I've been offered a position with your competitor um, it's at X amount of money. Are you going to match it or are you going to let me go? Because you've probably invested maybe 120 grand in my training and education to be really good at my job. So is it worth you paying the extra money to keep me in house? You know, and so it's that and that's it's fear that holds women back when it comes to that kind of stuff. They're afraid they're, you know, maybe it's a bit of loyalty. Maybe it's a bit of fear of moving into the unknown. I think these conversations need to be had because um, the, the more you wait to assert that power, the greater the gap that's being created.
1: Yeah, I wanted to get into that a bit, the assertiveness of of women and and how much of it do we have to take on ourselves um, and being part of the solution? Because even reading Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, she says she's been at conferences and meetings with hugely intelligent, professional, experienced women who then come in and sit at a table Mm. separate for lunch Mm. than the other big wigs, if you want to call it, at that event. And, you know, she's had to say, come over, sit down. Mm. And I suppose it's self-perpetuating, isn't it? Whether it comes from the ballerina on the duvet to being paid less to whatever has caused it over the years. There has to be a time where we do start believing in ourselves and we do start pushing ourselves forward. What of the survey that said that men will apply for jobs that they're 60% mm. qualified for and mm-hmm. women will only, where they are 90% mm. qualified. And it has been questioned whether or not that was that was valid. But I think there is a case where women feel grateful, they feel empathetic and they feel so happy to be here mm. that they accept lower than they should. So I think, uh, like I really believe it, it
0: this this is not a woman's problem to fix this is a a socioeconomic problem to fix and men are a massive part of this conversation um and and i think the fear is that it's a sort of a zero-sum game we let the women in and we're out that's such a load of bullshit like it doesn't work that way and when businesses work better with uh, broader representation broader perspectives broader viewpoints every boat rises Every boat rises and there's so much research to back that up. I've just done a master's in business equality, diversity and inclusion just to rubber stamp my Bible bashing on the podium, you know, but it's it, it, it works. But I do think there is a real risk of men becoming fearful and disenfranchised from this conversation and feeling alienated. Um, you know, the, the rise of the women's network great in one way absolutely shit in another every women's network should have a male ally to even up the gender representation in that room because a room full of women talking to each other about what the problems are isn't going to move the dial you need the men in the room and you need to identify the allies who can then go on and speak in soothing tones to maybe the men who don't get it quite so easily and spread that good word about look at the end of the day it's respectful behavior that's all that's required here it's pretty basic you know do you respect and value everybody in your home your business your community equally do you allow them to be who they are um, and to create their own value and that—that's what it is. that's what it is that's what it is at the end of the day and I think because of a sort of a you know a legacy of this kind of stupid machismo in the workplace um, men and I think the men are hurting as much as the women they I, I think most of them are really struggling under the weight of that um, because there was a fantastic piece of research done around empathy you know and we assume that women are more empathetic than men actually um behaviorally and neurologically They are no more predisposed to be empathetic than men. There was a series of tests done where um, men and women were put into test situations where where they were asked to be empathetic. Now, in situations where the men saw no social value in that empathy, um, they weren't empathetic. But when they felt there was some intrinsic reward to them for being empathetic, they were absolutely as capable of it as the women. So we've created a society and a culture for our whole society that is not rewarding empathy in men. That's very sad in a way, because empathy is one of the core, not only the core values of how we live our lives, but also a true sign of leadership that you have enough humility to look around you and to understand the perspectives of others.
1: And we talk about toxic masculinity and having to feel like the breadwinner and the strong one all the time. That doesn't serve either. Um, And I have friends who are stay-at-home dads and yet they don't get the text message for the play date. The mom still gets it. Who's in work? Who then has to text him? So you're up against it. And Mm -hmm. we we talk about... I know we're going back to the the, the family again and not every... Can I just say one thing there?
0: Women women do, I think, uh, shoulder a lot of that extracurricular stuff um, sometimes not necessarily because they want to, but because it's easier. So for example, any time that I'm signing a form for anything that needs to be done, I'll put down Dave's number just on purpose because I know it's probably never going to be wrong. But I, just as a sort of a, not an act of defiance, but just to just to break the, the expectation that it's the mother who puts the number down.
1: And I think to assume that if a mom is going to get the phone call to say the kid is sick and and run, that the dad is just sitting there crunching numbers and isn't also worried and feeling left out mm-hmm. and wanting to be part it, of the I don't think it I don't process. think it's
0: I don't think the system that we've
1: created is fair on anybody yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And what about people then who will say, How can you have equal pay for equal work? If you have somebody coming in with a bank of experience in one particular area and have more experience for that role and another person coming in and they're new to the role, but they will be doing the same job, how can they be paid the same money?
0: So interesting you should ask that question. There's a a huge confusion around the difference between equal pay for equal work and the gender pay gap. So equal pay for equal work has been enshrined in law since 1974. Um, doesn't mean that it's always happening. Um, but uh, that, that should be immutable. It's not, but it should be. The gender pay gap is if you take a pyramid of an organization and you cut it in three or four quartiles and you split it between men and women, what is the overall um, gender pay gap by quartile? between men and women. So it's actually not the gender pay gap is not about the individual, it's about the organizational spread of earning power. So if you have all men on the top table, that's going to weight the earning power of the organization in favor of men. Um, and, and I think I think possibly, uh, cynically that's why a lot of people are really w- working hard to get women on the executive teams but actually what we need to be doing is creating a culture at entry level of of a, uh, a culture of progression for women
1: to the top so it's it's very complicated so tell me about your success then at work equal you and the team campaigned for five years and you've touched on it there the gender pay information act what is that going to mean when it finally begins to work so what it'll mean and i i i think the methodology
0: will be launched this year i really do um it's been a long time coming um is that there will be a a a kind of a date marker whereby organizations have to start collecting um data around their their pay and rewards and bonuses for all their um employees but it only applies to organizations with in excess of 250 employees at the moment but it will over the next three or four years scale down to 50 employees um and so they have this kind of window can't they have a name for it in the uk i can't remember what they call it the snapshot period they call it so from x date to x date which might be a three month period they capture all the the pay rewards and bonuses and then they analyze the data and publish um what their pay gap or what their pay gap isn't in the case of unpust who recently launched a, a zero gender pay gap so um it, it, what's interesting in the uk was that um 90 of all companies waited until the very last minute to jump on board if if a company is serious about this and actually wants to change for everybody's benefit they need to start working yesterday um and and also, nobody, there's very few people and even in the on report, they had to face up to the fact that they had a bonus gap in favor of men because of very particular circumstances. The bonuses went to uh, the delivery cohort and they are predominantly men. They're working on getting women into that and um, that section of the organization now. But they were able to say, yes, our bonus gap is there in favor of men. And this is why. And actually what people want is um, an understanding and 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 I think that's why employees employers are a little bit afraid of. Well, I'm going to publish all this data; it may have a negative um, uh, effect on our share price or whatever. Um, and how do I rationalize it? Well, you rationalize it by having a strategy and an action plan to change it. That's the very first thing. Um, and th- this gender pay gap reporting, if it's taken as a compliance um, duty. Uh, you may get tripped up because people are not stupid um, and and they 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 read the words they understand the words and they know the meaning Um, but if you take it as a an opportunity and a mechanism to change the
1: balance of equality in your organization it's it's a very powerful tool And I wanted to ask you about that. Is there an appetite for change, do you think? Because there's a lot of talk now of inclusion, diversity, equality, um, and it almost feels like box ticking for organisations. Do we take box ticking until it seeps down into the culture and the societal shift? Yeah, we do. We do because it changes the
0: discourse, um, and you can't unknow something. So once you become aware of something, it's in your head and your your perceptions have changed. So even if it's even if it's starting um, the conversation for the wrong reasons, it's better than not starting the conversation at all. In fact, I was doing as part of my um, research thesis, I did a, a series of interviews with um, a multinational, and at the and my kind of um, area of interest is at the very very bottom of the organization how how does this conversation affect those people who are the greatest number of people um, with a really significant uh, impact on the success of the company uh, is this whole conversation just starting from the middle up or does it live in the bottom Authentically, Um, and one person that I spoke to said, "Well, you know, we're really passionate about the work that we do. We really believe in it. We're a little bit tired and jaded because we don't get any reward for it." And I said, "Would it help if if there was some sort of bonus reward or or benefit in kind for the work that you do, advocating for others?" And they said, "Well, yeah, it would help us, but then it might attract the wrong people." (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like well you know if it attracts the wrong people and the wrong people being people who were only there for the reward they're hearing the conversations they're privy to the issues and the problems that can't but affect people and they become aware of it and even by sort of a an insidious osmosis suddenly they understand something they didn't understand before so I just think any way that we can bring the horse to water do it
1: Yeah, I think we look down at gender quotas and think, no, we need to be at the table by our very merit, but it's not happening. It's not happening. So you have to kind of set the pride aside and really push for for change. Have you been conflicted on that or or battled with that? No,
0: I mean, I made my peace with quotas many, many years ago um, as a mechanism for expediting change. Um, And, you know maybe maybe there's a little bit of murmuring and grumbling um when somebody gets a role oh she's only there because she's a woman or whatever but you know no organization is going to give the role to a woman who's not capable of doing the job and there's plenty of capable women out there um so w- what tends to happen is the woman gets on with her job does a really good job at it and people forget what happened uh around quotas and stuff like that so and also, you know, if 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 people are really negatively affected by that, you have to ask yourself, are those the people that you want feeding the culture in your machine?
1: Yeah. And I listened to Glennon Doyle talk recently. She's the American author and activist and now top podcaster. And she was talking about it was sort of along the lines of men will put themselves forward for any job and women will wait until they're fully qualified before they mm. even think about applying. And I looked at the statistics on LinkedIn and women are less likely to apply for jobs that they have looked for. And yet they're more likely to be hired when they actually Mm -hmm. do apply. So there's there's really something going on. But she was talking about when you get to the table and obviously she is very successful now and gets at all kinds of, of tables in her professional and her activism work. And she said the level of mediocrity you find among the men is palpable because There's been a bit of blagging, the faking till you make it type of thing. And like you said earlier, the system isn't really working for anybody and it's broken in in many ways. But it is interesting when you look at people's capabilities and abilities to do a job and they're not putting themselves out there. Or even when you look at how women in power are viewed, Mm -hmm. it's still very much stereotypical that she's harsh she's a bitch she's this she's that this this is another societal norm that needs to be broken down
0: yeah and i mean i've been really conscious as i've been you know speaking on any number of platforms uh, like i don't want to alienate people i don't want to i particularly don't want to alienate men from the conversation um, you know i don't i don't have any intrinsic problem with men in this in this And in fact, as I said earlier, I think they're really a key part of the solution. Um, And I think, you know, yeah, bringing up that point about the mediocrity of men. eh, Yes, it could be true, um, but it's not particularly helpful at the moment. Mm. Um, And and angry isn't very attractive as you advocate for change. Ration, numbers, analytics, proof, that's
1: more compelling. Does change happen slowly? Is that something you have found or have you seen progress over the years? Well, isn't it amazing how much change
0: has happened since COVID, you know, and and I think you look, we, we look back on this time and think, well, you know, a, 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 a sort of an unseen agility surfaced um, and all of a sudden people could do things really, really fast. In fact, there's a huge m- movement against... Um, that layer of middle management now in corporate America, particularly where they're saying, well, you know, we made some key decisions without involving those guys because we had to move fast. And now we're wondering, you know, do we really need them at all? It's like, well, yeah, you probably do to a certain extent, but actually is a hierarchical system the enemy of equality? Possibly. Possibly. Is a flatter organization, more democratic, more equal? Yes, very, very possibly. But there's still a place for everybody. And I think it is... Um, Knowing that is what lets you sleep at night because, my God, you'd be pounding the pillow otherwise going, why is this taking so long? When you hear figures like it's going to be 120 years until women get pay parity to men, you're like, well, what's the bloody point in all of this? But I think if you're if you're moving the dial, you're part of the conversation, you're bringing people with you. That's all you can really hope to do as 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 an individual or an individual organization.
1: And we are so aware now. I mean, sometimes I wish I was in my mum's generation and I could just throw out any L process stuff to the kids and then throw the plastic in the bin and not know any better. And that's not to say there weren't issues in that generation. But we know what we know. And as you that's say, it. when we know better, we do better. And all yep. you can do is push for change. And as I say, you have achieved change in work equal and yet you continue to educate yourself and push on to learn more tell me about deciding to do the masters it, it kind of happened through
0: uh, sort of conversations with myself and brandon and i because he did the same he masters. did the same masters yeah we did it like um hinge and bracket or stapler and waldorf whatever your cultural references um and uh It was great. It was great to do it together, actually, because there was real support in that. Um, And for me, it was an opportunity. I'm pretty sure we decided to do it before Covid hit, but it happened to be during Covid that we did it. Um, And so I didn't do a degree when I left school. I went straight into the workplace. Ever practical, just wanted to do and earn and learn on the job um and don't regret a minute of that you know I've really enjoyed doing things wonky as I do everything my own way you know and it's kind of I quite like that it's not the way it's expected to roll but um we decided to to apply to go back to do the masters through the recognition of prior learning process which is basically they take your career as as a body of education and you kind of wrap that into a um, very, very lengthy CV and submit it. And um, so it was amazing. Like and, and found out last Friday that we both got first class honors and it kind of feels just surreal and fabulous. And my husband is the president of IADT, where we did the masters so when we get conferred at the end of March he'll be handing me my scroll which is just
1: really weird you wow. know so yeah that's a really cool moment that would yeah. be a good photograph absolutely. definitely for the top of the grand absolutely. piano absolutely
0: <laughs> <laughs> if we had a grand piano
1: <laughs> and it is you know even as you mentioned there like you know yourself and your husband working together yourself and Brendan working together your twins are a boy and a girl men and women can work together and it's a quality that we're looking for not a fight totally and not an argument yeah. and I think we've. I mean, talked- okay.
0: Can I just say one thing? We couldn't have got here without the women who stood up as the militia and and seriously broke eggs to make omelets. So you can't you can't softly, softly from the very beginning. It needs the trailblazers. It needs the agitators to to get this far. So I'm not for one second saying that you can tickle your way into change. It needs to start hard, and it has started hard. And none of this would have been possible without the amazing women going back so far to agitate for change. Look at St. Bridget, for example.
1: I know, and we've come such a long way from having to give up your career the minute you got married to where we are now, where, you know, we've got pay transparency on the way is is huge. Mm. And you're right, I think there is a societal shift. There's also been a real shift in how we discuss gender. Mm. If we're going to be truly inclusive, Are we going to get to a stage where gender doesn't matter? In the 1800s, in the Age of Enlightenment,
0: particularly starting in the UK, they started to become obsessed by classification and categorization of everything. And it was the first time that it had ever been done. um, And it was a kind of a a whole um, cohort of scientific minds who were categorizing flora, fauna, humans, for all their all their categorizations from neurological to sociological to economic, everything, everybody began to be put and everything began to be put in a bucket. And from that point onwards, as as a race, we have become. I think, over obsessed with classification um, even, you know, you go on holidays and you're thinking, well, would this be the equivalent of uh, Malhyde then at home? <laughs> you know, you're trying to classify, classify, yeah. where does it live? And I think that's um, possibly exacerbated by the information overload. We need to be able to parse and place things where we feel they belong in the neurological filing cabinet. And I think the idea of of some form of fluidity is a fantastic antidote to that like even you know my the twins peers and you know it's it like it's kind of mental that you would think that you just pick somebody of another gender and then you spend the rest of your life with them and that's the end of it it's kind of a mental concept like it's i know you're probably not allowed to say mental it's a crazy concept that you would pick somebody of another gender make that decision you live probably 30 years longer than you were supposed to when that decision was made. And, and that's it. It's, yeah, it doesn't, again, it seems pretty badly designed. And the idea now that my kids' generation are, are looking at a sort of a more rounded version of what life could be like, what love could be like, what commitment could be like, I, I think that's very liberating for them.
1: Yeah, I do, too. I think we're at the the, the cusp of another enlightenment. Mm. Um, and it is they are really exciting times that we're living in. They're scary times, that kind of awareness. There's a weight that comes with that. But do you have ultimate hope, particularly for for Ireland?
0: Uh, you know, we are almost like a Petri dish in this country, you know, where we can we can test things quickly, we can move fast. And we can do we can do big things if we want to. Um, I think there has been such tur- turmoil over the last two years and and everything happens by prioritization politically, economically, whatever. There is a list, a to do list um, at the highest levels and, and and budgets get allocated to that list based on their priority. And those priorities are quite often more political than social um so that said real change happens through grassroots through you know look at Ashton Murphy and look at the way the country rose up um in in an unignorable way against that treatment of another human um and and how much it brought up about back to respect you know all those huge issues um so the people are the voters they are the client if you like they are the the politicians client and you know we do have a huge amount of power if we get behind what we really want and we decide what we really want um as a people and what 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 country we want for us and for the future generations Who who do we want to be? And I I do a lot of work with the Icelandic administration around, you know, work equal, but also learning from them around gold standard. And um, there is they they are the most equal country in the world. Now, they're tiny. They're 300,000 people, um, but they're not content with that. They don't feel delighted with themselves or smug or complete. They know there's still more work to do. They know they can get better. Um, But the will is there with the people to create
1: a respectful, equal society. And that's what I would like to think we will get to. And we do have so much power in simply the opinions we hold, the conversations we have and the way we form those opinions. I think people forget that and they don't realize that a very small percentage of society needs to hold an opinion before it becomes a societal norm, it's something like 10 yeah, percent. It's really that's the tipping frightening. Point.
0: And in fact, that's the work that we're doing with Lift Ireland um, uh, another organization that I founded with Joanne Hessian and David Hessian, which is around um, it, it's a process for us to evaluate and improve our own levels of leadership to lead ourselves and others. And it's really looking at the kind of core values that the again, it was a national survey asking the Irish people what what values of leadership need to be improved for us to be better and eight were identified and and there's a roundtable process which anybody can go on to liftireland.ie book into a roundtable and do one for free Um, and it's really a kind of an analysis just it takes about 40 minutes um so the themes are like listening accountability competence determination respect um, and and just taking a few moments to say well okay i believe i'm a good person and i do the very best i can for myself and for those around me what what actually is respect and we have a text text that we read out about respect and then we ask ourselves some tough questions around well actually not as a life sentence but in the last 24 48 hours how respectful have I been to either others or myself you know and and taking the time to reflect is like the ultimate luxury because everything moves so fast now we're in perpetual motion the stuff coming at us from all angles even even mindfulness is is legislated for at this stage so so getting the time to actually think about um who am i how is my behavior how is it affecting others and how can it be better and um, it's just the most gorgeous thing to do um and and that again is about that kind of tipping point piece so we're working over the next 10 years to Get ten percent of the population through the the lift leadership round roundtable process, um, so that we're growing uh, a population who understand the values of how to lead themselves and others, um, and and taking the time to think about it, and it is igniting. Um, there there's about there's over two hundred schools secondary schools involved. Um, we have about 60 corporate partners, sports groups, community groups um, and all the all the secondary schools have been a pull to us. They, we, we haven't necessarily gone after them, but they, they're, they're gravitating to us and the teachers get it. They see it as something that's missing in the education process, this foundational
1: understanding of who we need to be as humans. Yeah, it's so important. That gives me all the feels, I have to say. <laughs> Where we've come over the last two years with the way we work, is that going to influence the, the gender pay gap, do you think? The more access to flexible working and that we're really looking at how we work? I hope so. I hope so. But I hope... Um, so w- one of the big issues,
0: for example, say, uh, with changes and evolution of parental leave just to go back to that for a second is you know a, a, a top law firm might say well we're going to give you you know extended uh paternity leave um and you can take two or three months off in in line with what we give in maternity leave and oh yeah that's a brilliant idea and what a fantastic protocol to have in place but actually what's the take up and culturally men know that they're going to be um uh, penalized. for for taking that from a career point of view so so it's going to take a lot of courage on men's part and that the same applies for flexible working that it's not going to work if the only people who take flexible working are women (laughs) because the chances are they're going to work all the hours anyway and have to do all the moral load on top of it so it needs a, a sort of a unity for now, they're, actually, funny enough, in, they're, they're trialing a four day work week in the UK at the moment. Uh, the fantastic mother Pukka and her Flex Appeal um, campaign has really just cemented something very special. And I spoke to the guy who founded the four day work week, um, an Australian guy as part of the Work Equal Conference. What he's doing is absolutely amazing and it's totally doable. Imagine how transformative that would be if everybody worked four days a
1: week. Yes, please. I think it would just, you know, give us that work life balance that gives time for that self reflection that you spoke about, because at the minute, most people are working and they're busy at the weekend and they're not really getting that downtime. Down and you're right. It's a luxury, but it's it's well needed to be a well-rounded individual. How do you stay a well-rounded individual? Mm-hmm. You have a, if lot I of, am. <laughs> a lot of balls in the air. How do you personally keep your head together through all of that?
0: Um, I think I try and invest, in invest as much as possible in the important relationships in my life because um, that's kind of the lifeblood of it all. At the end of the day, uh, in turn, I, I I can be generously selfish, as I call it. I can take my own time to do my own thing to make sure that I'm fed. Um, whether it's you know making sure that i have my workouts in the morning before anything else happens or you know walking at the weekends or hiking or whatever or i don't know learning constantly feeling like you it's a it's a balance between saying i'm enough right now exactly as i am and everything that i have is beyond my greatest dreams which it is and also allowing yourself to understand that you can always be a better version of that and in
1: so doing reap greater rewards but you're so right about protecting the relationships around you because sometimes that can get lost especially when it comes to juggling work and your relationships and they can begin to suffer so yeah I think it's really important for for people to hear that and because and, that's what it's all about isn't yeah. it that's well, all we have really
0: isn't it you know um and so many people had so much stripped away from them and i think you know where we've just come from everything was magnified so if you had a nice domestic situation maybe you got to go a little deeper with that and spend a bit more time and enjoy people in a new way but if you had a really bad
1: domestic situation my god that got way worse so much food for thought. Sonia Lennon, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.